You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Let's bow our heads together. King Jesus Christ, we've just declared that you are Lord of all. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. And we have just sung with our mouths and made a declaration that Jesus is Lord, that he is master, that he is ruler, that he has all authority over all things, Lord of all. And so we're here to celebrate that, that he is Lord over this world, that he is Lord over this universe, Lord over history, Lord over eternity, Lord over life and over death. But God, we know that in our own lives that there are things that we hold back from you. There are, there are areas in which you are not Lord, that we are not allowing you to rule and to reign. And so God, I pray that as your word is opened and as your word is taught, Lord, God, I pray that you would indeed be Lord of our emotions, that you would be Lord of our drives and desires, that you would be Lord over our finances, Lord, that you would be Lord over our families and our relationships, that we as your children, as your servants would gladly yield to your Lordship. And we pray that your word would remind us of that and that your spirit would empower us to live that way. You are indeed Lord of all. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. You see, the wolf, it was like he had asthmatic symptoms, some sort of breathing condition because he was huffing and puffing. And the pigs chose different building materials to construct dwellings. The girl wore a hood that was red. It was red, I'm telling you. It was red. The wolf had abnormally large teeth and eyes. Her grandmother uh, passed away. I'm sure of that. You see, you can tell facts related to stories. You can describe characters in a story, even what they do in a story. But unless you tell the story, you haven't told the story. You see, stories have a beginning and they have an end. They have something in between called a plot or a storyline that you are supposed to follow. Stories aren't very enjoyable and they don't make a lot of sense unless you follow the plot. Simply stating some information from the story is not the same as telling the story. And I'm afraid that too often when we read our Bibles, uh, we, we, we read information, we read facts, we, we take some ideas or some concepts and we, we think that, that we understand the Bible, but we uh, so often remove these things from their context in the plot, in the storyline of what God is doing in the universe. You see, the Bible is a story. And... The Apostle Paul was really concerned about the churches in the region of Galatia because he was 
listening to to the way that they were talking about the Bible and the way that they were teaching the Bible and the way that they were reading the Bible and they were taking concepts or ideas from the Bible but removing it from the storyline. And so Paul in Galatians chapter 3, you can turn there now and uh, the ushers can help you out. They're going to be coming up and down the aisle right now. If you left your Bible at home, you can borrow this one or if you don't own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Just put up your hand or holler at them. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5 verses 15 to 25. And what Paul is going to communicate in these 10 verses is that the Bible is not primarily about a list of rules that God has commanded us to do for him. It's in fact a promise of what God has promised for him to do for us. It's not what we do for him, it's what he has done for us. You see, a lot of people approach the Bible as though it's a list of of prohibitions, penalties, and punishments. But no, the Bible is a book about a promise. It's not about us trying to follow a list of rules so that we can reach up to God. It's a story about God reaching down to us. And so I'm going to read Galatians 5, 15 to 25. It says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Some of you are thinking, that was a lot. Are we going to... I don't know what any of that means. Well, that's why we're here, and that's how I spent my week going, this is a lot. I don't know what any of this... But ultimately what Paul is trying to communicate here is he's trying to say, fit the law into the story. Fit the law into the story. The Bible is not a story. It's not a list of rules of what we're supposed to do. It's a promise of what God says he will do. And the problem with the churches in Galatia is they were were legalistic. They were teaching a brand of Christianity that says in order to please God, in order to truly follow Jesus, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to to follow these rules and rituals and these religious practices. And Paul said, "You're, you're missing the point. You're taking those things out of the context of the story. He's trying to remind them that the message of the Bible is about a promise. And he's going to show that the promise is superior 
to the law. And he's going to show that in three ways. Here's the first one. The promise is superior to the law in terms of priority. In terms of priority. The promise came before the law. And that's what he's going to communicate. He starts with what he calls in verse 15, a human example with a man-made covenant. A covenant is a, is a, a legal agreement that's rooted in relationship. You see, there's lots of relationships that we have, but not all relationships are covenant relationships. There's lots of legal agreements that you can sign up for, but that's not necessarily rooted in relationship. A covenant is a blending of both of those things. The most obvious one in our culture today is marriage. Marriage is called a covenant relationship. It's, it's a legal agreement, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you receive a license from the province of Ontario and you sign it and there's witnesses and it's all very formal, but it's not merely legal. There's a, I hope there's a relationship attached to it, isn't there? The reason why you make those vows and those promises is because you love the person. It's a covenant. Similarly, in another way, a, a, a will or, or, or a last will and testament, which is actually the same word used here in the Greek, it's also a covenant because it's a legal document and it's binding. You, you hire a lawyer to, to, to set it all up for you, but it's also rooted in relationship. I mean, when you write your will, I hope that you're leaving things to people that you have a relationship with, not just strangers. It's, 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 a, it's a legal agreement that's rooted in relationship. And so what Paul says here is that in, even in man-made covenants, things like wills and things like marriages... You can't just have someone come in from the outside. It says no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And so after two people get married, after they make their vows, after they sign the document, it doesn't really matter if Uncle Joe is opposed to the, to the wedding anymore. He had his whole speak now or forever hold your peace part. And, and so he can't, he can't interfere with the covenant that has been made. Similarly, a will doesn't officially come into effect after the person dies. Once that person dies, it doesn't matter if cousin Edna thinks that she should have got more. The will has been written. It's been ratified. No one can change it or annul it. So Paul begins in verse 15 by talking about these human covenants that we have. Then he transitions to the covenant that God made with Abraham in verse 16. It says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, then he plays on this word offspring a little bit. You see, uh, offspring is, is one of these words, it's, it's like the word a sheep. It's a collective singular noun. You can have a one sheep or a whole flock of sheep. You can say, uh, look at that sheep or look at those sheep. It's the same word. So you, offspring can refer to one person or it can refer to a whole group of people. And so he plays on that idea. He says, notice how it says offspring. And he takes it from the angle of a singular. And he says uh, that offspring, at the end of verse 16, is pointing to Christ. Now, there was a sense, and listen, Paul understands grammar, especially Greek grammar, better than any of us do. And so it's not that Paul misunderstands that it's, a, that it's a collective singular noun. He's just playing on the idea that it can be read in two different ways. So Abraham made this promise. He promised it in Genesis 12 that he would bless Abraham, and that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. 
And then he solidified it. So that was the promise that he made in Genesis 12, but he solidified it in Genesis chapter 15. And so I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Sometimes people get nervous when preachers tell you to turn uh, somewhere else. They're like, what if I can't find it? Well, Genesis is the easiest book in the Bible to find. Go to the very front, table of contents, and then Genesis. Boom, there you go. Genesis chapter 15 and verse 1. This is after the promise had been made. And God is then going to confirm those promises with a covenant. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Or sorry, Abram. He was called Abram back then. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring And a member of my household will be my heir. And so Abraham, this is many years after God made the promise in Genesis 12. And Abraham's kind of like, what's going on, God? I mean, I I still have no children. I have no offspring. He talks about this Eliezer of Damascus guy. He was a servant. He said, "I, I have no children. My will's been written. And Eliezer is in it. He's not even my son. And so my my offspring that you promised, where are they? Then God assures them, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, and your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And remember, this is, this is, this is the very verse that Paul quoted in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. This is the verse that tells us that we are justified by faith. To be justified means to be counted righteous. And that was shown here in Genesis 15:6. God has always been saving people by faith. Then look down at verse 9 with me. It says, He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Verse 10, And he brought him all these, cut them in half, And laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. Now, what is going on here? All he he told Abram to do was to go and get the animals, but Abram almost instinctively knew what was happening here. And he slaughtered these animals, he cut them in half, he put one half on one side and one half on the other. You see, because Abram knew that God was about to make a covenant And this was part of the ancient Near Eastern culture. This is how covenants were made. In a covenant relationship, you would have a superior person and an inferior person. Someone with all of the strength and all of the power and someone with significantly less strength strength and power. And what would happen is, if, if they wanted to make a covenant together, the person with power would stand at one end and the person with less power would stand at the other. The superior and the inferior, or it's called the suzerain and the vassal. And they would stand across from one another. And then these slain animals would be laid on either side. And then the superior would sort of give the nod. And at that point, the inferior person would come forward trembling towards the superior person. And what they were saying by walking in between these dead animals, they're saying, if I break my promise to you, may I become like one of these animals. It was showing the seriousness, the accountability in this relationship. But it was one way. 
It was just the inferior person, the person with less power, who was promising loyalty and allegiance to the person who was stronger. And they were saying, listen, if I'm disloyal, then you have every right to treat me the way these animals have been treated. So that's how a covenant is made. We have a clue of interpreting uh, Genesis 15 from the book of Jeremiah, verse 34, or chapter 34, verse 18. It says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, listen to this, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. So you can just write down Jeremiah 34, 18, right in your margin there. So the next time you read Genesis 15, you're like, what's this about? Well, that's what it's about. But here's the thing. Abram's there. He's waiting for God to sort of give him the nod to say, okay, come forward now. But it never happens. There's sort of this awkward delay. If you, if you go back to uh, uh, Genesis, you're already there, but I closed my Bible. So I'm turning back now to Genesis uh, 15. And if you look at... Verse 11, as Abram's standing there waiting for the cue, it says, and the birds of prey came down on the, on the carcasses and Abram drove them away. So as he's waiting, you know, vultures and all of that start circling and he's, and he's waiting for this and he's clearing off all of the birds of prey and he comes back. He's, he's waiting and waiting so, so that the whole day goes by. Verse 12, and the sun was going down. A deep, a deep sleep fell on Abram. He, he didn't... He didn't he wasn't even able to stay awake. He was waiting so long. Then look at verse 17. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So Abram never walked in between the animals. A, a, a firepot and a torch. God, it's a symbol of God who was a consuming fire. God is the one who passed between. This was completely unprecedented in any covenant relationship. It's always the inferior who walks between the animals, not the superior. It's always the inferior who says, you know what? If I don't follow through on my promise, I will end up like these animals. But here's the beauty of God and, and the gospel and the promise. God says, I will fulfill my promise and I will become like these animals. Because if you go back to Galatians 3 now, the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular, to Christ. That even back in Genesis chapter 15, we have this picture of Christ who was a sacrificial lamb. Who died so that God could fulfill his perfect promises. So all of this happened before the coming of the law. So if we pick up in Galatians 3 verse 17, it says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul is saying, God made that promise to Abraham. The law doesn't cancel out that promise. Let's lay it out a little bit as a timeline here. This is what Paul is getting at. In 2000 BC, God made a promise to Abraham. Much later, he says 430 years later, he made, the law was given to Moses. Now, um, the law was given to Moses in 1446 BC. That's about 600 years difference, not 430 years difference. But 430 is an important number. That's referring to the amount of time that they were slaves in Egypt. Genesis 15, 13, Exodus 12, verse 40. So when it says 
Uh, 430 years after, it's referring to the fact that Abraham had Isaac and God repeated the promise to Isaac. And then he had Jacob and repeated the promise to Jacob. And then Jacob and all his sons moved down to Egypt and they were there for 430 years. And so what, what is being said here is that, is that just because the law has come doesn't mean that it cancels out the promise. And we need to understand that the promise came first, so it has a greater priority in the overarching story. It does not annul. It doesn't make it void. That's because salvation is all about what God has promised to do, not what he has commanded us to do. And so, loved ones, this is why it's so important for us to read the Old Testament. I know sometimes it's difficult and it's challenging, but... Only reading the New Testament is like watching a sequel to a really great movie. I mean, you can enjoy it on its own. It kind of makes sense. But unless you've seen the original, you don't really understand what was happening before, or what the background is, or who those characters used to be. Or if someone who shows up on the scene, are they a familiar face or are they brand new? You always appreciate the sequel a lot better when you've seen the original. The exception, of course, is the Star Wars prequels. Those are terrible. Don't watch them. But loved ones, we need, listen, you, you, you will not understand Galatians 3 unless you understand the Old Testament. It's as simple as that. But I gotta be honest with you. I mean, you won't understand the book of Matthew unless you understand the Old Testament. And you're hopeless to understand the book of Revelation Unless you understand the Old Testament. You, you, it all fits together. It's all part of one great story. And that's what Paul is trying to communicate to the church at Galatia. That's what the Spirit is trying to say to us. How vital the Old Testament is. Because it shows us the priority of the promise. Here's the second way that the promise is superior to the law. It's superior in terms of purpose. Superior in terms of purpose. Verse 18 says, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the inheritance doesn't come by the law, it comes by the thing that came before the law, the promise. But then the natural question comes up in verse 19, well why then the law? I mean if we're saved because of the promise, why did God bother commanding us to do all of these things in the first place? Why go to all the trouble of the smoking mountain and the fire and the cloud and the lightning and the Moses and the stone tablets and all of that and the shaking and the terror? Well, why did he go to all of that trouble? Why then the law? He answers it. He says, well, it was added because of transgressions. A transgression is a synonym for the word a sin, for our disobedience. And so the reason why the law was added was because of sin. Now there's a, a number of reasons why the law was added because of sin. In, in one sense, it kind of restrained sin. It defined what sin was so that people knew, okay, I'm not allowed to murder, and I'm not allowed to steal, and I'm not allowed to lie, and I'm not allowed to do the, it, it, it sort of, it, it, it prevented a society from sort of boiling over into complete anarchy and immorality that the people of Israel had the law and they were given the law because of sin also within the law especially in the book of Leviticus you see that this whole system of ceremonial sacrifice was established to, to teach people about forgiveness and the mercy of God but also the seriousness of sin 
Because when people went to the tabernacle or to the temple to make a sacrificial offering, they put their hands on the animal and they were essentially saying, because of my sin, what is about to happen to this animal should be happening to me. And then that animal was killed and burned. So the law was added because of transgression to show the seriousness of sin. But ultimately, when you look at the law, the reason why the law was added, it was was to show not just simply to restrain sin, but to reveal sin. You see, the the law teaches us that sin is not just a problem of behavior on the outside, but depravity on the inside, a crookedness. The Apostle Paul mentions in the book of Romans about how there were certain sins he didn't even, he didn't even care about committing them until he found out that they were against the, against the rules. It was like God drew a line and said, you can't cross that line. And Paul didn't even know the line was there. He didn't even want to go over there. But then as soon as he found out that you couldn't go over the line, he was like, just because. Why? Just because, apart from the grace of God and apart from the supernatural work of regeneration in a person's heart, we are all inward rebels. And the law revealed that. The law was added because of transgressions to show us how sinful we are. Why? So that we could receive the Savior. That was the purpose. The law had a purpose because God had promised to send His Son, if we don't know how sinful we are, then there's no reason for us to believe in Jesus and to trust in him. But the law was added because of transgressions in verse 19. It was added transgressions. And then notice the the emphasis on time in verse 19. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Then it says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So he's talking about the law, and apparently the, the leaders, the false teachers in the churches in Galatia were making a big deal about, listen, God, the God's law is so important. Think back to Mount Sinai and how important that was, and the clouds, and the thunder, and the lightning, and, and the angels were there. Now, there aren't really any explicit, they're more kind of cryptic references to angels being present when the law was given in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, in Acts 7, 53, Hebrews 2, verse 2, it was believed that angels were present on Mount Sinai when the law was given. And that the false teachers at Galatia were making a big deal about that, but angels were there. But Paul here sort of flips their argument on them. Take a look at this chart. He says, well, yeah, so God then relayed the commands to angels who then relayed the commands to the intermediary who is, who is Moses and then relayed it to Paul. Then he says in verse 20, well, an, intermediator, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And then he's, he's sort of tongue-in-cheek saying, well, God, when he gave the promise to Abraham, there was no middleman, there was no middle angel. Uh, there was, it just went straight to Abraham. And a lot has been said, a lot could be said about verse 20. There's multiple interpretations. It's really unclear what Paul is saying, where he's saying an intermediary, but God is one. The best guess is that he's leading into this next question. In verse 21, it says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? So he he sort of used the intermediary aspect to sort of segue into being able to say that God is one. 
And then the question comes in verse 21, is the law then contrary? It's just an important question because if God is one, he can't make a promise and then introduce a law that is going to contradict. They all have to fit together. And the only way that we can understand how the promise and the law fit together is to understand that they have different purposes. They have different purposes. Verse, the middle of verse 21 says, For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the law couldn't give life. The law, in fact, brought death. The law did not ultimately change us to make us better. No, it opened our eyes to see the desperate situation we found ourselves in. You see, it served a different purpose. Warren Wearsby talks about the relationship between the law and the promise as as the difference between, between a mirror and warm water and soap. You see, a mirror can tell you that you need to wash your face. But looking at the mirror repeatedly will not make your face clean. And trying to take the mirror off the wall and scrape the dirt off your face is not very effective or comfortable. No, the mirror tells you you need soap and water. And so the law has a purpose. It reveals our sin so that we will go to the promise, the promise of Jesus Christ who died for our sin. You see, the law, it can reveal sin, It can even, to some extent, restrain sin, but it can't remove sin. They have a different purpose. Only the promised one, only this offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ, can remove sin. The law can convict sinners, but it can't save them. The law can potentially change someone's behavior, but it can't change someone's heart. Only Jesus can change the heart. So the law and the promise are not contradictory, they're complementary, they work together. So going back to our timeline here, is the promise was given and then Moses was given the law and they didn't cancel one another out, but going throughout the history of humankind, they worked together. The law was continually reminding people that they need to trust in the promise that God was going to deal with sin once And for all. The Puritans said, You can't sew with the thread of the gospel unless you pierce with the needle of the law. You can't sew with the thread of the gospel unless you pierce with the needle of the law. The thread is of no use unless unless the needle, which is which makes things a lot more uncomfortable, unless that is used. And this is one of the problems in the way evangelism is being done in the church today. As we talk to people about, oh, you need meaning and purpose in your life. You need peace and you need security. And then we're confused about why people aren't interested in following Jesus. Because people haven't been shown by the law that they need him in the first place. The needle hasn't gone through so that the thread just is just a piece of string. And it, it, it's not making sense. And that's why when we share the gospel and when we teach the gospel, we must, we must reveal what the law reveals, our sinfulness and our need for a savior. That's its purpose. And so we, we can't use the law to earn our salvation, but we also can't just forget about the law and act like it never existed. 
We need to make sure that it's included in when we're sharing our faith with those around us. And so Paul is communicating clearly that the promise is superior to the law in terms of priority, in terms of purpose, and then lastly, in terms of permanence. In terms of permanence. The promise was there before the law, and the promise will be there after the law as well. If you look at verse 22, it says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so you can see in both of these verses, you've got images of, you've got imprisoned, in verse 22, you've got captive in verse 23. And then all of these references, until faith came, until faith, until Christ came, until the promised one came. The law had a purpose. It was a different purpose from the promise. But the law also is not permanent. The promise alone is permanent. So the law functions as our prison. And the law shows us, how, shows us our need to be set free. Jesus came to set us free. But if you already think you're free, then again the gospel makes no sense. And so God gave the law to show us the trouble that we're in. You see, one of the biggest problems with us as human beings is not just that we're sinners. I mean, that's a big enough problem in itself, that we sin. But the bigger problem is the fact that we're convinced that we're good people. And the law takes all of our rationalizations and explanations of why we think we're good people and just blows them apart. It obliterates this idea that we're good people. And it throws us in this prison desperate for freedom that can only come through Jesus Christ. I mean, we continually look at other people and judge them by a standard that we can't even reach ourselves. And we make excuses and we blame other people or we blame circumstances. But the law just says, no, it's black and white. No, you sinned and you're in prison and you need to be set free. The law shows us how we've fallen short of God's perfect standard. Verse 24, he says, so then the law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The law is our guardian. Now, guardian is, the, the, the word here, the Greek word is a, a pedagogos. And uh, the, there's a, no, basically just about every English translation uses a different word to translate. The King James uses schoolmaster, it's sometimes it's called a, a tutor. It's, it's, it's sort of like a tutor slash chaperone. You see, in the Roman world, this pedagogos was, they were a slave. They were employed by the master for a specific purpose. Their job was to take the master's children to school. Not on the basketball court, but literally to take them to school. And, and here's, a, here's a picture from a, a vase from the Roman era. This is the Juris. This is by a, 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 a sculptor named Juris. And so here you have the student in the middle, the child. On the left here, that's the teacher, and then behind the child is the pedagogos, is the guardian. Now, and this is why the King James translated it, a, a schoolmaster. 
Now, this person's job, this guardian's job was to make sure that the student wasn't messing up with the wrong crowd, that the student wasn't um, uh, passing notes or goofing off when the teacher was teaching. They were also there to protect them from any sort of danger. But the, the purpose of the, of the guardian was to make sure that the child was listening to what the teacher was saying. Now just imagine that. Just imagine if I look at some of the teachers in the room right now. Think about the teachers in this, in this school. How I think they'd be up for that. That, that every single student came with a, with a pedagogos, came with a guardian who, who, it wasn't the teacher's responsibility to make sure that the kids were paying attention. There was this other person who was there to be the disciplinarian. Notice here, they're holding a stick <laughs> for a reason to make sure that the kid was paying attention. Here's why Paul is saying that the law was like a guardian. God is the one trying to teach us something. What is he trying to teach us? that we're justified by faith, that we can't save ourselves. And where the student and the guardian is there saying, make sure you're listening to the teacher. And the law, tell, the law was like a guardian reminding us, yes, I must listen to what God says. God says all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 15, I'm saved by faith and faith alone. I can't save myself. The law doesn't save me. The law shows me how badly I need to be saved. And look how emphatically he says in verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Our relationship with the law is now over. We no longer need this guardian to go to school with us. In order that we might be justified by faith, now verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now that faith has come, now that faith in Jesus Christ has come, now that the promise has ultimately be, been fulfilled, we are no longer under a guardian. Loved ones, we're no longer under the law. And we need to understand that when we read our Bibles, we must have it fit into the overall story. The law was not permanent. It was there for a season. It was there for a purpose. And that purpose has been fulfilled. If you are in Christ then you no longer relate to the law the way you did before Christ. And so, loved ones, this, this, to, to get real practical, things like the Sabbath, we are no longer under the Sabbath law. We're no longer under a guardian. It's right there in black and white. We can take the principles of the Sabbath and our need for rest, we can weave that into our lives. Loved ones, we are, we are not under law. We are not commanded to tithe. We can take the principles of financial stewardship and everything belonging to God and giving a tenth of the representative, but that is not what earns our salvation or our right standing with God. Now, some of you are here today and you're like, well, I don't keep the Sabbath, I don't tithe, and so I guess the law is not a problem for me. Listen, all of us struggle with living by law rather than living by faith. I mean, there's some people here today who kind of, you know, came into church kind of slowly with your shoulders hung and you chose to sit at the back because you, I mean, even as late as last night, you, you did something horrible. You went back to that habitual sin, the thing that you promised God you would never do again. And you're, listen, you need to know that you're not under law. God has promised that Jesus Christ will forgive your sins by dying on the cross. You need to hear that today. Some of you also came into church today with a little bit of a swagger because you did your devotions three days in a row. And you're thinking, man, maybe I should get up here and teach the sermon. 
You also, and the person giving the sermon also, needs to know that Jesus Christ is what forgives sins and what secures our relationship with God. We are not under the guardian. We are not imprisoned by the law, loved ones. We're free. And the law play, that's worth clapping for, amen. And the law kept us in prison for a time. And the law had a purpose in being our guardian so that we would hear the teacher. And this is what the teacher says in Matthew 5, verse 3. Or, yeah, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? The people who read the law and say, I just can't do this. The people who hear God's commands and say his standard is too high, he is too holy, I can't reach him on my own. Those are the poor in spirit. And Jesus says, blessed are you if you feel that way because that's why I came. You can't do it, but I can. And then Jesus said just 14 verses later in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or, or, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but notice he doesn't say, I have come to enshrine the law or permanently instate the law. That's not what he says. Fulfill is not the opposite of abolish. He says, I haven't come to abolish it, but I have come to fulfill it. How did Jesus fulfill it? Well, he fulfilled it by being perfectly obedient. He's the only human being ever who fully obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law. But then he also fulfilled all of those ceremonial sacrifices for forgiveness of sins because he was the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins so that if you place your faith in him, you can be forgiven. You can be transformed and changed and set free. He came to fulfill the law. So if we go back to our chart here, the law came uh, through Moses after the promise was given to Abraham and it continued on. The law and the promise worked together until you get to Jesus because Jesus came to fulfill the law. The guardian is no longer there. We're no longer in prison and the promise lives on. And the promise again was that Abraham would bless or that God through Abraham would bless all the nations of the earth. And that's what we're called to do, to spread this message to the very ends of the earth. That's our mission as a church, to make disciples of all nations. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And so loved ones, remember here today, remember here today that this book in your hands and this life that you're living is a story of a promise, not a list of do's and don'ts. Because loved ones, if, 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 you, if you come to church, if you read your Bible, if you try to live your life as though it was based on the law and not on the promise, that's going to cause you to look to yourself and how you are measuring up by God's law or by your own standard. And you're going to feel defeated. You're going to feel despair. You're going to feel discouragement. And the worst case scenario is you're going to feel pride because you think you're actually doing it. That's what happens if you have your eyes on the law. But if you have your eyes on the promise, then you're going to be filled with so much peace and so much stability and security. So much love, overflowing love that God has loved you and that you love him and love your neighbor in return. Because ultimately this book is a reminder that it is not about our performance, it's about God's provision. It's not about law, it's about the promise. And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible 
story that you've revealed to us in your word from Genesis to Revelation and that uh, comes through so clearly in this passage in Galatians, God, that, that ultimately we are saved not by how good we are, but how good you are, and not how faithful we are, but how faithful you are. And so, God, I pray that you would impress this truth upon our, upon our hearts, upon our minds, because this is the message that brings us freedom. And God, I, I pray that we would be filled with rejoicing. I pray that even now, as we take the symbols of Christ's fulfillment of the law, of, of him being the sacrifice for our sin, as we take the bread and the cup, I pray, God, that we would rejoice and, and be filled with gratitude and thankfulness for all that you have done. All the glory belongs to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.